when our work is done, it's going to be so toxic to identify as pro-life or anti-abortion that people will not publicly admit to holding those views. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today, I talk with Pamela Merritt and Aaron Matson. They're the co-founders of Free Pro Action. It's an organization whose mission is to protect abortion rights and to advance reproductive justice. And let me tell you, I talk to a lot of brilliant, strong women who are heading organizations to fight for things that they're passionate about. And Aaron and Pamela fit that bill. They are here to fight and they are taking no prisoners. And considering the fight over the open Supreme Court seat and Brett Kavanaugh's nomination, someone who is almost certainly in place to overturn Roe v. Wade, we need fighters like never before. And what I love about Repro Action is that they will hold you accountable. They are on the ground and they are in this thing to win. If you're an elected official and you aren't 100% behind reproductive rights, look out. Look out. You know, I'm pro-choice and they've got me nervous. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And I urge you to look into the work that ReproAction is doing and join them because it's going to take all of us. We are fighting for our lives. So without further ado, here are Pamela Merritt and Aaron Matson. Pamela, Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, so first I want to say that, you know, I'm really impressed with your organization, ReproAction, mainly because you can see that you guys have had some tangible, measurable successes. What does ReproAction bring to the table that wasn't there before? Like what was missing that you saw? So ReproAction, we decided to form ReproAction because we took an analysis looking at the broader arc of the reproductive rights movement and saw how for decades the movement has been losing. And we knew that if we wanted to win, we had to act like winners and we had to try to win. And so we came in with a new analysis where we wanted to use direct action as a tool for increasing access to abortion and advancing reproductive justice. We are incredibly proud of our left flank analysis. And what we are known for is our willingness to hold folks on all sides of the issue, whether they are traditionally considered allies or opposition. So what that looks like is for abortion opponents, we hold them brutally accountable in very creative aggressive ways. And what that also looks like is for some folks who may call themselves pro-choice champions even, but allies who are disappointing and will minimize shame, abortion and reproductive health care, or even celebrate compromise as a victory when in fact it's a loss, we hold them accountable to. Right. So what does direct action mean exactly? Like what's an example of direct action? That's a great question. So direct action means that you literally are taking your ask and your demands directly to the person who can give them to you. A good example of direct actions that we've done is doing visibility actions out in front of crisis pregnancy centers, in front of galas for pro-life organizations. We've taken on editors of papers for what they've said (laughs) publicly about women. We've demand in conversation in a way with, with people who hold power. Right. You know, what was really striking, you mentioned allies, right? So what's an example? And I have some in my mind, but I wonder if we're thinking of the same allies. What's an example of an ally or someone who would seem like an ally or a group? group where you've had to call them out and correct their course. Well, I think for an A1 example of that, we're talking about uh, senators who have not come out in opposition to Brett Kavanaugh for the United States Supreme Court, including some senators 
who like to hold themselves out as as pro-choice. There's absolutely zero excuse for anyone to not take a bold stance on this nominee. He is unpopular with the public. He is the fifth and final justice on the court who is being brought in specifically for the purpose of overturning Roe v. Wade. And we're looking at specific senators for accountability. So in my home state of Virginia, for example, Senator Tim Kaine still hasn't come out and said that he will oppose this nominee. Senator Mark Warner has not yet come out and said definitively that he will oppose this nominee. However, he did do a meeting with reproductive health rights and justice advocates that I attended that was promising. And I'll hand it over to Pamela to talk about Senator Claire McCaskill, because this is one of the scariest (laughs) stories that we've got in the Senate right now. Absolutely. Thank you, Erin. So um, Senator McCaskill has long done this dance where, uh, you know, she is is considered to be a pro-choice senator, but she often will either extend abortion stigma by saying that nobody wants to have an abortion, which is not at all true. Um, And more importantly, she is not a, a guaranteed vote. Even if she does vote the right way, a lot of energy and work has to go into getting her across the finish line. And in our opinion, um, more energy and work goes into getting Senator McCaskill to do what what she ran saying she would do than makes any sense. Um, unfortunately, and as Aaron said, it's very frightening that right now we are forced to put energy into giving her information, um, giving her feedback from her constituents who overwhelmingly want her to oppose nominee because she's She's publicly says to entertain both sides of the argument, um, going so far as to say that she wants to hear from more people who live in in different parts of the state. So her phone's being flooded with people who who live in cities and in the county who are are horrified. And I know that she's also hearing from people who live in rural parts of Missouri. So Senator McCaskill is a perfect example of somebody who has a public perception of being very pro-choice, who when push comes to shove and what is quite honestly the most monumental opportunity to declare yourself pro-choice that has happened in the last 45 years, we are seeing this long elaborate process that not only forces us to basically make the case to somebody who should get it, but it also begs the question of whether or not uh, the senator truly has her convictions supporting access to reproductive health care. Right. So just two comments there. You're absolutely right. And I hadn't thought about that. And I'd I'd heard statements from her and others saying that no one wants an abortion. But, you know, that's not really (laughs) some people actually do want an abortion. Right. Also, what is the motivation if your constituents, you know, support choice and support having access to abortion? I just don't understand the motivation for not opposing Kavanaugh. Yeah, it's actually just inexcusable. There's no reason that this nominee should be confirmed. There's no reason that there shouldn't be robust resistance from across the country and uh, frankly, on both sides of the aisle to this deeply unpopular nominee. We have 
uh, we have so many documents that we will never see in advance of of these hearings. We know that he's deeply unpopular. We know that he's been brought in to overturn Roe. We know that so many other things are are hanging the balance. So losing LGBTQ protections, losing progress that we've made on the environment, even more attacks on unions. So this is an intersectional horror. It's an intersectional nightmare, this nominee. And the senators who think that they can play it calm and cool by sitting this one out, they are setting themselves up for failure. I think that there's a sense that, well, look, if we keep our heads down and don't oppose this nominee, particularly in states where folks are up for re-election, they may fear that they're vulnerable to losing re-election, that they will not be able to continue unless if they support Kavanaugh. That Nothing could be farther from the truth. What turns out the base to vote is people who who stand up for the base. And in this case, it's not just standing up for the base, but standing up for humanity. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, just to drill it down into, you know, myth versus reality, a lot of national pundits will talk about the Midwest or the Upper South where we do a lot of our work and they'll act as if it's somehow culturally so different from other states like on the East Coast or West Coast, that politicians in the Midwest and the Upper South have to do different things. And that couldn't be further from the truth regarding this nominee either. The state of Missouri just overwhelmingly, with record, you know, historic voter turnout in a, in a primary election, rejected an anti-union measure that was passed by the state legislature. It was overturned by ballot initiative with 67% of the state. Of, of voters um, saying that they wanted to reject that measure. You know, this is deep, deep heart of the country, uh, Midwestern territory, where the majority of voters in a historic turnout just said that they want to protect unions. The same can be true about wanting to protect access to health care, which is being threatened, access to reproductive health care, specifically voting rights, civil rights. There's this this really bizarre perception of the Midwest, but as somebody who lives here and Aaron is from the Midwest too, the demands of constituents in the Midwestern states and in the Upper South mirror the demands on the coast. And all of us are saying that this is an unacceptable nominee. Right. So I'm just curious. So if you look at the overall picture of all of the measures that have been taken to to restrict abortion access, is there one that's more harmful than others? Right. I'm thinking of, you know, the trap laws or, you know, the global gag rule. Which one is the one that keeps you up at night? I know Kavanaugh keeps up, us up at night, but things that have happened before Kavanaugh. You know, I think it's really a symphony and that's the problem. It's not one single type of restriction that is the most threatening. It's the fact that they work in tandem together. So the Hyde Amendment unjustly strips coverage for insurance of abortion, right? So that pushes it pushes abortion care out of reach for huge swaths of people, in particular, especially hitting women of color the hardest. Mandatory waiting periods or forced waiting periods will force people to spend days waiting to receive the type of care that they that they need. That coupled with clinics being forced to shut down, the fact that we have seven states right now that have only one abortion clinic, so people having to drive hundreds of miles if they even can to access abortion care, and then that layered on top 
top of, of sometimes waiting days on end with these forced waiting periods, procedures not being covered, insulting things like inaccurate information, doctors being forced to share inaccurate information. There's a whole climate of shame and stigma and restrictions. And the web is strong precisely because they're all there. And so I don't think there's a silver bullet that we can point to and say, that's the one, that's the worst one. All of it is designed to be part of a system to make abortion care completely out of reach for all people and to really shame, pressure, stigmatize, and punish people for their sexuality. Yeah. And you know what I think is really interesting about that is that I think people have had, and you can tell me if I'm right about this or not, that there's been this false sense of security around abortion access because of Roe v. Wade. As long as Roe v. Wade is intact, then you know access is fine. But that's not really true. I mean, you know, I read an analysis recently where, you know, our access is dying through, you know, death by a thousand cuts or death by a million cuts, right? And I think that lots of people have overlooked that. But now with the Kavanaugh nomination, you know, they're thinking more seriously about, you know, are our rights really under threat? It's very true. And I will say that I think for certain communities, access and the threat to access has been clear for quite some time. You know, in as Aaron mentioned, these restrictions have been um, like a rolling nightmare. I think uh, symphony is a perfect analogy that nobody wants to hear that music, but that in, in a lot of parts of the country, there's abortion deserts. There's people who are intimately aware of how how a 72-hour mandatory waiting period impacts their lives. And this is overwhelmingly poor women, women of color, the people who experience reproductive oppression at its most fundamental level. So, I think that people, as as you move up the privilege ladder, there there's an assumption that I'll always be able to do this thing. But but I do think that in in a lot of states, particularly the states where repro action is on the ground and doing grassroots organizing, we're very intimately aware, and this has been decades in the making with a lot of, of fits and starts. But the end result, when you look at states with single providers and with a lot of restrictions on the books, is that a lot of folks find out real quick what, exactly how hard it is to access reproductive health care. Yeah. You know, speaking of which, I wanted to talk about, because I know this is something that you focus on as well, these pregnancy crisis center, you know, they go by another name of fake clinics, right? So what exactly are these pregnancy Pregnancy crisis centers. Yeah, so crisis pregnancy centers are anti-abortion fake clinics that exist for the purpose of misleading and shaming people seeking abortion care. Another way to look at crisis pregnancy centers, they are the core operating infrastructure of the anti-abortion movement. They are in all 50 states. According to our rigorous, independently verified research, there are nearly 2,700 such anti-abortion fake clinics. So they're in communities around the country. They often use deceptive names that make them seem as if they were an abortion clinic. So they'll use names such as a woman's choice, right? And they will intentionally deceive people and and lead people to believe that they are abortion clinics. We have multiple documented instances of leadership in the anti-abortion movement, as well as leaders in the crisis pregnancy center movement, bragging about deceiving people and bringing them in the door because that way they're able to convert them to not have abortions. So this causes harm at the community level in so many different ways. Number one, by denying access to care and delaying access to care. And we know because of restrictions on abortion, in particular 
on procedures and timing, that that can be crucial. That can be the crucial difference between someone accessing care and not. Another way that this is just a real scandal is that these institutions are not accountable to the public, and yet in many cases, they are taking public dollars. So some states are actually redirecting temporary assistance for needy families, dollars intended to help feed people, right? Hungry people. They're redirecting and misdirecting those to crisis pregnancy centers. The state of Texas just awarded over $8 million to a group called Human Coalition, which is like the creepy big data arm of the crisis pregnancy center movement. So the point is, there's a lot of people are being harmed by these at a community level. It is not just at the individual level. And it's incumbent on all of us to demand accountability and ensure that people know what these things are, A, because they thrive on not being known. And then B, making sure that we're not allowing public dollars to go to them any longer. Yeah. You know what I find really interesting when I was thinking about these um, crisis pregnancy centers, I thought, you know, what is it like to have a job where you wake up every day nine to five and your job is just to deceive women? who are, you know, who need, you know, important care, who need critical care. And what is it like to go through your day knowing that your job is just to deceive people all day at a really important stage in their lives? It is a stunning, uh, it's a stunning way to approach the world. And, you know, we, we know for a fact that they get extensive training in how to be effective in their deception that, you know, they've got message training, they've got, you know, the folks who stand out in front of abortion providers, and try to redirect people seeking care to these fake clinics, like to portray themselves as volunteers. But you know, this is this is a very skilled trade. So they are definitely receiving a lot of, of support within their organizations to make sure that they execute the deception very well. And so the public face, it's a little bit like some, you know, somebody spending hours and hours on a meal and then presenting it and saying it only took two minutes to make. You know, they, they definitely <laughs> <I> do that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, we all too often accept them for what they say they are rather than for what they actually are. And that's why ReproAction is dedicated to, you know, ripping the veil off and exposing them for what they actually are. Yeah. So, but, you know, there have been some successes in relation to this, right? I think in California, there was the California's Reproductive Fact Act. Is that right? What are some successes in, in finding these kind of fake crises? Centers. Yeah, so I'm, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but the California Reproductive Fact Act, which was a common sense measure designed to make sure that people knew that that they were in a fake clinic, they had to post something in the wall and say if they weren't licensed. So that was actually just the Supreme Court decided and ruled against it this summer. And I think that brings it back to bring it home for a moment. The fact that that happened, Justice Kennedy, who was the swing vote on abortion, decided to rule in favor of the fake clinics. And that's Frighteningly, he even compared California to a totalitarian state, which is really, really terrifying to think about when we actually have a verifiably 
autocratic leader in the United States right now, Donald Trump, right? <laughs> like, so, so we've yeah. got those concerns. But the fact is, right the day after that decision, Justice Kennedy announced his retirement. And while Justice Kennedy did contribute to other decisions like Whole Woman's Healthy Hellerstedt, we know that Brett Kavanaugh or, frankly, anyone Donald Trump would bring in to replace Justice Kennedy is brought in to overturn Roe v. Wade. And that one seat holds the power to do it. So I just wanted to bring that up with relation to the case itself. But on the issue of victories related to fake clinics themselves, I would say that actually just our movement, our reproductive health rights and justice movements are kicking but right now in bringing <laughs> accountability. And I'm so proud that ReproAction has emerged as a clear leader in that effort with bold, robust accountability. So we are outside busting pavement all the time. I mean, almost on a weekly basis outside these crisis pregnancy centers. There was a protest outside of one last night. We've done some really bold accountability campaigns that have gotten the word out in the community and put the anti-abortion movement on defense. And, you know, to give a, one tangible example of something that that recently happened. So last year, we actually got a keynote speaker who was planning to highlight and serve as the head speaker for a crisis pregnancy center fundraiser. We got her to, to back out of it. And we had requested that. And that individual was actually Jenna Bush Hager, the daughter of former President George W. Bush, who self-identifies as a feminist and is a Today Show correspondent. So the more we get the word out about this, the more good work that we can do. And I think it really, the most momentum is with the activists. Well, that's impressive. Yeah. And actually, you know, I did read about that. So and I think that's like I said in the beginning, that's the thing that I admire about your organization, that you do have tangible successes that you can point to. So, you know, I wanted to talk about another element to reducing access, and that's the abortion pill. Right. And pro-life activists, they must really hate this because in, in relation to controlling women's bodies, you know, the element of control when, when someone uses an abortion pill is is completely lost, right? It's something that, that's done in private. You know, so how are abortion pills being targeted? That's a great question. So what we do know is that abortion pills are far more regulated than required for, you know, the risk associated with medication abortion. So, you know, there's years and years of research that show that it is incredibly safe, it is effective, and that there are regulations that, that vary state to state based upon where you can acquire the abortion pill and also hyper regulations for providers that they have to adhere to that have nothing to do with the safety of medication abortion and everything to do with creating hurdles and in, in trying to institute what you spoke about, which is that this is between this should not be something that is uh, that is is complicated. And the pro-life movement is working very hard to try to complicate the simple. You know, on social media, there's a lot of talk about people hoarding Plan B. I mean, is that something that's needed right now? Are we really at that point? Yeah. So I first, uh, there's, uh, there's a great deal of concern about the future of abortion access in this country getting even worse than it already is. And and that's good that people are paying attention. I do want to share that on social media, a number of people are conflating Plan B or emergency contraception, right. which prevents a pregnancy from taking place uh, if taken within a short time window after unprotected sex with the abortion pill. And those are two different things. The blurring of 
the abortion pill with emergency contraception is something the anti-abortion movement has done because they're not really opposed to abortion. They're opposed to people who have sex and are in charge of their lives. So, um, right. so first of all, I think the stockpiling, at least from what I'm seeing and, and comments about that is actually on emergency contraception. And if someone is able to afford to have a box of emergency contraception in their house, that's a great idea because it's a really, it's a really common, safe and effective medication. And if you don't want to be pregnant and you've got sperm in your body that you don't want to be there, you want to be able to take <laughs> emergency contraception quickly. Um, but that said, on the issue of abortion pills, those are much harder to come by. As Pamela just shared, there's no reason to make abortion pills so difficult to access in this country, but they are ridiculously difficult to access in this country. So people who are concerned about access to abortion and the abortion pill, and for that matter, all forms of reproductive health care, including contraception and other other devices and things that people need. The most important thing to do is from our perspective and and with our work that we're doing is we're educating people through our self-managed abortion campaign about the World Health Organization protocol for safely and effectively ending a pregnancy using misoprostol without medical supervision. So the, the World Health Organization has made these protocols for use of these drugs because they're so safe and so effective. And we have reams of data from overseas countries where abortion is even more restricted than it is here, showing that women and people who can become pregnant can safely end their pregnancies on their own. And so what I think the most important thing for people to do is to educate themselves about how these pills are used to end a pregnancy. Um, I'm more concerned with people getting the information about how they are used so that they can share that information with people and spread that information than getting the pills themselves. Because stockpiling abortion pills in themselves doesn't really necessarily make sense, but people should have that information. So people are looking for that information. It's available on our website at reproaction.org. And we're really proud to share the information directly, as well as a number of links to other reputable organizations doing that work. Yes, please do, because I want to post it in the show notes. And it's funny because, you know, I, I consider myself somewhat versed on this and, you know, even I completed them. And I remember, you know, when I was reading, I think you, you may have written an essay on this or an op-ed on this, and I was reading through your website. I, I thought, oh, you know, maybe I should, maybe I should stockpile some. And then I realized that I didn't need them because I'm married and I have I have children. <laughs> I just thought, I just, just the panic. The panic went through me and I thought, oh, well, I don't really need these. Anyway, so I'm glad you've cleared that up. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, what's really scary about this fight to me is that, you know, first of all, having access benefits all women. Right. If people think that only a certain segment of the population need access to reproductive health care, you know, they're mistaken. Everyone needs access to reproductive health care and access to be able to, to get an abortion. Right. Not just, you know, liberal women or Democratic women. But the, the scary thing is that the majority of anti-abortion activists, some of the things that they believe, and I think you wrote about this, Erin, that they actually believe that that men should actually have control over legislation in relation to what women do to their bodies. That's one scary thing. And also they don't necessarily think that the country would be better off with more women in government. Yeah. I mean, let's just, let's just put it on the table here. The anti-abortion movement is a 
fundamentally sexist and racist movement. And that's really what it's about. It's not concerns about babies or children or life. If they did believe in supporting babies or children or life, they'd have a different agenda right now, right? With family separations, taking action on that, standing up on maternal and infant mortality. They are nowhere, okay? But now we have data to prove what those of us who've been doing the work on the ground have known for a very long time that these people are really just total sexist bigots. And mm-hmm. they and and based on this polling that came out, the same people that want to see Roe overturned or the people who are supporting Judge Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court are the same people who are more comfortable with men holding public office. They're the same people who are more comfortable with women having traditional roles inside the home. And so really, it's not about abortion. It's about women and what they want is they want women to be subordinate. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And, and one of my favorite mentors is Loretta Ross, who's a former um, national coordinator and organizer for a sister song. And she often talks about, you know, reproductive justice activists working to dismantle reproductive oppression and about, you know, the source of that, that the core motivation for reproductive oppression is to maintain and fuel white supremacy. So when Aaron talks about controlling women, it's both sides of the coin. It's controlling, you know, which women can have children or are forced to have children. And it's also controlling on the back end of that, which women are punished for having children. And in some instances that we've already seen, which women are discouraged from having children. You know, when we see key members of the Trump administration talk about, you know, certain desirable populations, and when we see Donald Trump himself talk about, you know, which desirable immigrants we want to bring into this country, this isn't veiled white supremacy language. This is overt white supremacist language. And the control of women through access and lack of access to reproductive health care has been in the toolkit of white supremacy since day one. Yeah. You know, my take there, there are a couple of things going on here. One of them is, and I think we alluded to this before, is, you know, just the the control, right? And when women have access to abortion, when they can control their family size and they have control of their reproductive health, they're empowered, Right. And I talked to um, Katie Watson uh, several episodes ago. She wrote the book um, Scarlet A. It's the ethics and law and politics of ordinary abortion. That's the title of her book. And she made a quote that stuck with me. She said, empowered women are really inconvenient. You know, we take half the jobs, we take half of the spots in graduate school and abortion is symbolic of a lot of that. Right. So that's that's one element. But the second one, which you just hit on, is, you know, more simply, there are people who just don't want brown people to have babies. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the history in this country is it's a really dark part of the history of this country of forced sterilization of Mississippi appendectomies, which were, you know, infamous Fannie Lou Hamer talked about having gone into the hospital to give birth and having somebody give her a hysterectomy that she didn't even know or sterilization that had no idea had been done to her. And this is not far in the past. This is stuff that's happened in states like California or even in Puerto Rico into the 80s. So, you know, when we talk about why we need to fight for Roe and why Roe matters, Roe matters because it protects our right to access abortion and it also protects us against the state determining who gets 
to have babies who doesn't get to have babies, who's forced to have pregnancies to term and who has the right to make that decision on their own. You know, we cannot have a conversation about patriarchy without having a conversation about racism. And in Mm -hmm. particular, the subjugation of women, women of all races, although it's expressed differently with layers of privilege, but the subjugation of women is one of the top tools of racism. And so in specific, I want to, I want to dig in a little more and look at what abortion opponents are doing right now. So what abortion opponents are doing is they're trying to troll on racial justice work that is needed and necessary and that is happening in this country right now. And so they will they will try to misappropriate Black Lives Matter and say all lives matter, which is incredibly offensive. They will put forward bills that actually target specifically women of color seeking abortion care. And so they'll claim that they're against discrimination in the in the womb. But in fact, the purpose of these bills is to put a, a further suspicion and targeting at women of color. And so what and and in particular they'll they'll put up these racist billboards in places and they'll say things like like the Radiance Foundation while they'll say that the most dangerous place for a black baby is in the womb, which is a horrific thing to say about black women. And and what's interesting is they concern troll leading with the faces of children of color and they concern troll upon women of color. But in fact, what their aim is actually to use women of color and children of color as a front so that they can force more white women to have babies through the Mm -hmm. law. And so I want to bring up another intersection of this issue, which is LGBTQ oppression. And if we look there, the abortion opponents are the exact same people as the opponents of LGBTQ equality and justice. And in particular, there's a group that was formerly an offshoot of the National Organization for Marriage that spun off to another group, the Ruth Institute. And in a copy of a strategic plan they had during the height of the marriage fight, they articulated that one of the things that they were working against was, quote, a European-style demographic winter, unquote, preventing that. And what they're talking very directly about is that they want to, uh, want to see more white babies be born. And that's so much of what we are fighting today. And so if we are not having a real conversation about racism, if we are not digging in on racial privilege, if we are not organizing cross-racially, if we are not listening to and following the leadership of women of color and people of color, we are going nowhere on the abortion issue. And I think that's another area where ReproAction as a organization that is co-led between Pamela, a black woman, and myself, a white woman, you know, this is this is something that we need to dig into hard. For far too long, the mainstream reproductive rights movement has been helmed exclusively by white women. And, well, we've been losing for the past decades. You don't have to dig very hard to kind of see that in reality. The policies that exist that we talk about as far as restrictions aren't backed up into policies that help and encourage women of color to have safe pregnancies. Right. In many of the states that have the most re- abortion restrictions, they actually have some of the worst birth outcomes for Black women and infants. And that that is, I believe, by design, that there is absolutely little care and certainly no policy or investment being made in states like Missouri and Arkansas and Alabama and Georgia to 
improving birth outcomes for women of color and particularly black women who in many states are at at times four times more likely to die as a result of pregnancy. These restrictions are definitely hyper-targeted at encouraging healthy birth outcomes within a certain demographic. And the other fine point I'll put on it is that, as Aaron has has highlighted earlier, what you saw is that the pro-life movement absolutely organized itself around Donald Trump and to disregard any other thing that he does. And in the face of some of the most overt racist policies that we've seen in my lifetime, and I'm I am 45 years old, so so it's not about pregnancies and, and, and loving women, when you're caging immigrant women, when you are, you know, there's reports of miscarriage in some of the detention centers, there's miscarriages in Flint, Michigan, which still doesn't have water. And, um, and again, we have some of the worst maternal health care outcomes in the developed world. This, this is a movement, the pro-life movement that has gone ahead and put all their eggs in the basket of this one individual in this Supreme Court fight. So I just think it's important that advocates and activists know and and own the fact that the opposition is very clear and they are unwavering in their reality that this is uh, the most important Supreme Court battle in the last 45 years. So, you know, we need to organize and, and and be aggressive and build our strategy accordingly, that they, they are under no delusion at what is at stake right now. Right. So the thing I think that, that people don't often talk about is when they talk about the pro-life movement, they don't talk about the race around who they're targeting, right? When you just hear that they don't want people to have abortions or trying to, you know, stop people from going into abortion clinics, we don't really talk about the fact that where they're focusing their efforts in comparison to how they treat issues that relate to Black women, per se, or to immigrant women. Like, for instance, Mm -hmm. like you've mentioned, you know, there is no focus on the maternal and infant mortality rate. Or even the billboard campaign that Aaron mentioned a few minutes ago, the one that the Radiance Foundation did in Georgia and in black communities, uh, mostly just to get the media attention that saying that kind of racially charged hate about black women and black mothers, that we are dangerous to our children. But those campaigns, you know, you don't walk into a black neighborhood and insult black mothers to somehow get us to, to line up and be on your side. That kind of hate in the language was specifically designed to send a message to the broader community that Black women aren't dying because of the apathy and the lack of policy priorities uh, at the state and national level. It was somehow setting this lie that we're dying because we don't love our children and we're dying because we're somehow risky and poor mothers and bad mothers. And that narrative, that myth is as old as the first African who came to America in slavery. So I think it's very clear when you look at the themes that are layering onto each other that these messages aren't targeted towards communities of color. These messages are targeted towards anybody who might try to talk about and and advance policies that encourage healthy birth outcomes for communities of color. Right. Wow. That makes, that makes complete sense. So tell me about, you have a campaign for this. You have a maternal and infant mortality campaign. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Yeah. Um, So um, so we're super proud of it. And, um, and it really is a, a, 
a perfect example of us building within the community and centering people who are most impacted by reproductive oppression. So in Missouri, we really began our work talking about the priorities that Aaron mentioned earlier, that the state of Missouri gives federal TANF funds that are supposed to be feeding hungry kids, and the state of Missouri gives tax credits to anti-abortion fake clinics. In the last budget, it was $7 million going to these fake clinics, and there's 68 of them that received these tax credits. In the meanwhile, in 2016, they hadn't even said the words maternal mortality within a uh, legislative session. So there was no policy discussion, much less any advancement or leadership on the issue of infant and maternal mortality in Missouri, which is, it's awful. And it is a crisis, both in the rural parts of the state and in the cities. So we began our work in Missouri highlighting that disparity, highlighting the hypocrisy of the pro-life movement, shaming Black mothers with billboards in in advertising campaigns, while at the same time um, supporting people in power who do nothing to advance policies that would result in better birth outcomes. They won't even research how to build policy that results in better birth outcomes. And since 2016, we have done a screening series um, that is, is a public education series on the crisis in Missouri, and we recently expanded it to Arkansas. And what we do is we pull together panels of local experts, so from the medical field, from the birth justice field, doulas, activists, and then people who have been impacted by infant and maternal mortality will all sit on a panel. And these are people from the community. When we went to the Boot Hill, we got people from the Boot Hill of Missouri. And what we do is we screen a documentary film. We've screened the documentary film Jackson. And then we've also screened a fusion documentary called Death by Delivery, films that really do highlight the shady nature of crisis pregnancy centers, but also the kind of challenges that Black women in particular, but all women face when trying to access a good and accurate maternal health care. And as we've seen from Serena Williams on down to the women that we work with every day in poorer communities across the country. You know, it's, it, regardless of somebody's income, Black women have really poor birth outcomes. And most of the communities that we've done the screenings in have had a, the response of a balance of shock and surprise. And then there are people who are resigned and have personal stories that are heartbreaking, but they know all too well um, what is going on with maternal and infant mortality. Our goal is to get people to stand up and take direct action and demand accountability from those in leadership for supporting policies that result in our poor healthcare system and these poor birth outcomes. So we want people to go to our events to gain the knowledge that Aaron talked about earlier, that knowledge is power, to be activated and outraged, and then to take that and organize and build a strategy to change it. And I am thrilled to say that in the since 2016, we have actually seen people who are elected in power begin to organize together to advance policies that would 
begin the process of addressing maternal and infant mortality rates in the state of Missouri. And we're very hopeful that we'll be able to have the same impact in Arkansas. What can listeners do? What is the one thing that they can do aside from volunteer? What can they do to help this fight generally and help in the fight against the the Kavanaugh nomination? Yeah. So the number one thing that people can do, at first it starts within, and that is believing that we can and will win. That is the stance that ReproAction takes. We are proud to take that stance. We are not in this fight to maintain the status quo. We are not in this fight to minimize or mitigate damage. We are in this fight to end reproductive oppression. When our work is done, it's going to be so toxic to identify as (laughs) pro-life or anti-abortion that people will not publicly admit to holding those views. We know that we hold the moral high ground and we act like it. So I think the first thing that the people can do is to believe that they can win and then commit to taking action. You know, action looks different for different people. Some actions are safer for some bodies than others. But of course, as an ambassador of ReproAction and a co-director, people should be signing up at ReproAction.org. We've got these monthly Act and Learn webinars that are awesome, where we do trainings for activists. We dig in deep on topics. They're free and open to the public. Just get on our email list and you're going to find so many different ways to take action, tools, tips, learnings, tactics, invitations to direct actions, ways, petitions you can sign. So uh, just get involved. I love that. I have to say, I really, really love that. And I think that's what was attractive to me when I saw your organization. I wanted to talk to you. I mean, you know, the fact that you're, you're not going to stop until people are ashamed to hold those views. I love that. As they should be. They should be. <laughs> here, here. I think Aaron summed it up and um and and I have nothing to add <laughs> except that I do encourage people to visit our website. And we are also on Twitter as ReproAction and we are on Facebook and Instagram as ReproAction. Wow. Well thank you, Aaron and Pamela. Thank you so, so much for your work. It's really, really important and I appreciate that you're that you're doing this. Thank you for having us. <laughs> 